Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. Well, for about 15 years, my parents lived in a beautiful part of Westport, Connecticut, and it just so happened that our next-door neighbors were Paul Newman and his incredible wife, Joanne Woodward, and their family as well. And uh, it was amazing, even though we didn't really know them that well. We knew their daughter, Melissa. And Melissa has just recently written a book of her iconic parents and their incredible relationship, their amazing careers that spanned decades and decades, truly. Um, They were artists of the highest order, truly being not only in film, but also in theater, uh, different productions that they produced and directed themselves. Uh, They just did so much. And as we know more about Paul Newman's, uh, also his uh, wonderful giving back, his philanthropy, actually both of them were philanthropists and his whole Newman's own line uh, that went to a wonderful children's camp. We're going to hear all about this, but Melissa Newman's book is so beautiful. I had a chance to read it when I was on vacation last week, and it is really a photo journey uh, through their relationship and through their careers. And it's just, it, it you get lost in those photographs. They were actually one of the few enduring couples in Hollywood that were truly in love, that made it through thick and thin, everything in life together. And have the story to tell about it. And Melissa just picked the most beautiful pictures to really explain it all. It's called Head Over Heels, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. And I tell you, it would be a great gift. It's a coffee table book. It's something that you'll just look at over and over again to see these beautiful, iconic people that weren't just beautiful on the outside. They gave so much to the world and through their their hearts, their generosity, and the work that they produced for decades upon decades. We're going to hear from Melissa Newman today. And, of course, good news stories at the end of the show. That's always an uplifting thing to do as we head into your work week. I'm Laura Smith. This is all brought to you by Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule. Thankfully for them, they came up with a product that is changing lives. There's over... I think it's a half a billion servings of fruits and vegetables that have gone out in the past 20 years. That's a lot of fruits and vegetables. That's a lot of healthy ways to uh, get nutrition into your body that may not be possible because it's really hard to get as much as you really need. Ten servings a day is what we need as adults in America. Ten servings a day of fruits and vegetables to keep us healthy. Do we do that? A serving is a cup. And so I would say we are mostly hard-pressed to do that. We might get one or two, so says Dr. Howard, who formulated Balance of Nature. But they found a way to do it, to get all of it into the capsules with nothing else but the food in there. And you can order yours and be on it every single day like I've been for the past 13 years just by going to balanceofnature.com, balanceofnature.com. And when you do, put my name, Laura, into the promo code you're going to get 35% off of your first order and free shipping always. I'm telling you, it will improve your life on so many levels as it has done mine and my family for years. When we come back, Melissa Newman, don't go away. It's the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, this is a long-awaited interview. 
truly something I have waited, well, 22 years, basically, um, to have. A good friend of mine, well, I should say a good friend and a neighbor from way back when, when my parents lived in Westport, Connecticut, they had the great good fortune of living next to some pretty extraordinary human beings. And that would be Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman and their lovely daughter, Melissa Newman. And they lived side by side for 15 years. And um, we got to know Melissa uh, well and her beautiful boys and her husband, Rafe, and they it truly were uh, so memorable in so many ways that when my family moved back from Westport to move uh, back to Indiana once again after 50 years of being away, um, that was one thing that they they truly missed. It was living there and uh, being just in that atmosphere of pure goodness and beautiful people. And so Melissa Newman and I have not spoken in 22 years. This is our reunion, and I'm so grateful because she has written an extraordinarily beautiful book. It's actually uh, part pictures and part words. It's called Head Over Heels. Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the way home. It's it's so nice to see you again after it's, all this time. And I and we miss you and we want you to move back. So uh, I dream of that <laughs> so often about moving back there. It was truly idyllic in so many ways. And getting to know you and all that you do. Um, obviously, your parents, so iconic in so many ways. And reading your book was such a, an incredible perspective into their beautiful lives, their, their extraordinary relationship um, together. And But you uh, did, obviously, from the perspective, not only as a daughter, but someone who was very close to, and up close and personal with their lives and their careers also. And I, I just found it extraordinary. I read it on my way down to vacation last week on the plane, and it was – I just had goosebumps and, and almost tears. The pictures, the photographs are so interesting and so – I mean, it was just – it just hearkened me back to a time when Hollywood was more than just glitz and glamour. It was really beautiful people who were extraordinary in their craft and their talent, you being the same. As an artist, a singer, an author now, and so much that you do in the world with your art. And now as a writer, Melissa, your writing was so beautiful. I I just relished it and I wanted it to keep going. So when are you going to write your next book? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm partway through an apocalyptic uh, novel along with everybody else. Uh, that I will probably never finish. <laughs> oh, yes, you must. You must, because I'm saying that when I was reading it, um, I told you offline that I was actually making a list of vocabulary words because I was the words were so rich that you used. And to describe your parents, their relationship, that time this, of uh, being movie stars and artists uh, when they were. It, it's a time I feel like that it almost isn't here anymore. We don't really have people like Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman in in their artistry and also in their humanity. Um, tell, let's start at the beginning. Um, you you wrote this book because obviously you wanted to sh maybe shine a light on who they were as people as well as stars. Yeah, I um, well, there was you know there was a biography that came out. Of autobiography that was taken from some transcripts that came out and and the the um the editors had chosen a pretty dark narrative for that and I just felt like there needed to be a little something to balance that out and so I thought well let's just do something that focuses on the beauty 
And the complexity of my parents' relationship. I mean, it wasn't a, you know, they were both movie stars. They were both, um, you know, they were both actors, um, creative people. That's, it's never going to be easy. And, um, so I thought, let's just see if we can, you know, segment out, um, like the sort of the breadth of their relationship. Um, and I feel like, so the, so the book, uh, that's a hefty book to take on vacation. Thank you very much. Wow. I hope you had someone to help you with your luggage. Um, so it is a coffee table book and the, the genesis of it really was that everywhere, every house I've ever lived in, my dad used to walk around with, um, mouthfuls of nails and a hammer. And there would be these walls just full of photographs, like jammed together, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And, so we have one in our house and, you know, photos would migrate. There used to be the stairwell right here used to be full of it just there were so many photographs and so many of those photographs are are extraordinary. So they were they were both really good photographers. And this is back in the day when you had that wonderfully tactile, you know, that matte black and white. Oh, just so such beautiful photographs. But what we found making the making the book um, was that, you know, when you're, when your family photos are taken by Richard Avedon and a lot of famous photographers, cause there are about, I don't know, 15 famous photographers works in the book, along with personal stuff from my parents and photographs by them of each other and, and friends. Um, but it's a, it's a different process than, than this idea that we, my, my friend Andrew Kelly, who is a wonderful book editor and had made some gorgeous coffee table books. And I'm just lucky that I knew him. Uh, and the two of us sort of joked about this and then this turned into our COVID project. But, um, but the process of putting a book together like that, when you've got to get, you know, permissions and, and negotiate deals and all kinds of things with all of these estates and these photographers. And one thing that we found out that was so lovely was that, um, how thrilled a lot of photographers and their estates were to be participating in the book. So, so they were quite, quite lovely about it. And, um, and that experience was amazing. And Andrew really is the one who just tracked down and worked with people. It, it was extraordinary. And we got, we got pretty much everything we wanted in there. Although I have to say things keep showing up. I'm like, where did this come from? Why is it just sitting on a table? And how come I never saw it before? Snapshots. You open up a drawer. You're like, this should have been in the book. But well, that just means you have to have a part two, um, maybe to go with it, a companion book. I, I find I, I really got lost in the because I didn't know your parents. I think I saw your mom one time walking oh. her dogs when I was walking mine uh, down the street right around the corner from both of our houses. And she just she said hello and she had the most gracious beautiful smile twinkle in her eyes i mean your mother is extraordinarily beautiful i mean she is so interesting to look at and when you look at the photographs of her with your dad she, she's different in almost every single one of them it was so interesting i thought how can someone have so many de different depths of of sides of her that she just doesn't look the same in any of the pictures. What do you think that comes from? Because she was a true artist. Your mother was a, a real thespian. She was an actor, a stage actor, um, who studied that craft um, back when probably not a lot of people were going to theater school. And and so she had a a, a different aspect that she brought when she 
finally started making movies and stuff, something so rich. So what is it about your mother that she, you just cannot put a, your finger on who she is in any given photo? I think that um, to, to, you know, I was talking about the fact that my mother's trajectory started in 1957. She won her, to, to your point, she won her Academy Award for Three Faces of Eve, such an early film that um, she didn't have enough money for uh, for a dress. So she bought fabric and made her own dress. And that's something worth looking up. It's so beautiful, like fitted bodice, ball gown, jacket with a portrait collar, stunning, stunning. But she she knew what she wanted to be when she was born. She's always said, I was born with tap shoes on. I knew I, knew I wanted to be on the stage. And um, she was kind of the bohemian that my dad wanted to be as an actor. So when you look at, and actually there was a very strong, you know, in terms of acting, there were, that was right at the beginning of like the actor's studio and method acting and the Stanislavski method had all um, come to New York and New York especially. And um, that's where a lot of the really juicy stage stuff and, and learning was going on. So she studied with Sanford Meisner with the, the Neighborhood Playhouse. And my dad studied at the Actors Studio, but he he was not able to access what she just was a free spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. A, a true character actor. Yes. Right? You, you Your mother could be anybody she, she yeah. wanted to pull up. She could be that. And- that's, yeah, that's and a true that, character actor. And if you look in the book, you'll you'll see that my father always looks like my father. He looks like iterations of my father. My mother literally is a chameleon. She looks different. And somebody, I remember them asking, um, oh, what color was your mother's hair? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> honestly, it was different all the time. But in the very beginning of the book, I have a couple of pictures of, um, there's one in the very beginning of the book that I think is so indicative of what it was like to grow up with my mother because um, in the very beginning, there's a picture of my sister and she's in her little footy pajamas and she's a toddler and she's pointing at this beautiful glamour shot of my mother. And, you know, that was one side of, you know, mummy who went, who went and got dressed up and did fancy things and was a movie star. And then the next photograph of her is a picture of her at it at the house I'm in right now, as we speak, as you know, where we were neighbors, um, which my parents bought in 1961 and we're still here. We bought it from them 20, 30, 25 years ago. Um, but she, um, the next picture is of her washing a dog in the sink mm-hmm. and it's the same sink. It's still here. We just replaced the faucet like last year. Right. Uh, but there's a picture of her, you know, she's just, she's, she's washing a dog in the sink. And I remember I said once, to somebody, and I don't know who she was trying to impress, but I said something about her mom. Remember when you used to wash dogs in the sink? And she said, I never washed a dog in the sink in my life. And, um, <laughs> and I like, thought, well, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, there's a photo on the wall that says that says otherwise. But um, that was the extraordinary thing about her. She was, um, you know, we when she was home, she was um, she was cooking the French toast and getting us up for school in the morning and shoving vitamins down our throat and picking, you know, taking us, driving us all over the place and to the ballet lessons and the, and um, she always knew where everybody was and, and ran. They were very, very grounded people, despite the whole Hollywood thing, which I, I don't think people can even fathom being like anymore because, but they were. 
Well, it's why she, it's why they moved to Connecticut, I think, is that they didn't want to be part of the Hollywood thing. And plus, I think they were, they were both doing a lot of theater at the time. So I think it was, it was easy to, you know, easy to be here. And also growing up here, we were surrounded by artists and writers mm-hmm. and opera directors and people like that. I mean, they, they really had no desire to be part of the whole Hollywood scene. They had some close friends there and we did go back and forth a lot, but. But I think more of their, you know, their cultural lives really revolved around this scene here. And Westport used to be a place where that was just full of artists and writers. It was kind of, you know, it was I think bohemian it, back in yeah. the day. Yeah, it really was. It was a more it was like a very natural place for people to come. And of course, um, uh, Lucy, Lucille Ball and Ricky Ricardo on the show owned a house in Westport. Fun fact. Oh, they did. I forgot they about did. that. <laughs> this was their country house. And I look at, you know, our house now, it's like the smallest house on the block besides your old house, which was also, and you know, and also your house, your your parents' house was my grandmother's house originally. That's right. Right. So they, so my parents owned that house. That's um, right. And your mom fixed ago. up the barn. They yep. said that was her dance studio at one point. My sister um, now lived there with her boyfriend and Yeah. And you've been I, all over this corner, I tell you. It's really incredible. When my parents bought it, they bought it with the um thought in mind that I would uh come up and move and live in the barn with my daughter, yes. who was very little at the time, baby. And um but I was kind of stubborn back then and I was like, I need to forge my own path. So I stayed in New York and I would come every weekend uh to Westport. And now I look back anyway, and I'm going, that's- what was I thinking? <laughs> Well, I don't know, like the New York, you know, we, we head into New York every weekend. We're so lucky. I wasn't yeah. in Manhattan, though. I was in Mamaroneck, which is um, oh, you know, not okay. quite New York City. Not it quite. was, uh, yeah, Westchester. Yeah. So, but uh, no, we loved it there. It was, it's, a, it's a very, very beautiful place. It's hard to even describe it to, to people who, you know, Connecticut, they think of New York and then they think of, you know, maybe Boston, but you know, in between are some some of the most beautiful states in the country. And yeah, Connecticut's definitely one of them. But I what I love about your father also, um, I my mom met him once. Uh, he, he came over when they were selling the house and he was considering buying it again. Uh, um, I know. Yeah. My, and, we, I mean, my mom and I were rooting for it. We were just saying, you know, we yeah, we want it. Oh. Let's get it back. I I wish so badly that you you could have so that you could have it forever. It's a beautiful old mill house from 1796. Yeah, and it was such yeah. a such a beautiful on the Aspatuck River. And so you you have the same river in your backyard that that we had in ours, and it was just magical, absolutely magical. But my mom remembered meeting your dad. She said he was so lovely and so down to earth. And I think so about your father. I mean, I don't think there was a better looking human being on the planet in in terms of a man. I think he probably was the most beautiful man ever created by God, honestly. And as as his as his child and people always say, well, does that sound weird to you? I'm like, no, it's just a fact. I remember his cousin, um, his cousin, Robert, sent him a postcard from Greece with a picture of a Greek god, a statue of a Greek god on the front of it. And he said, I had no idea that you had so many relatives here. And it kind of, yeah, but, you know, much to his chagrin, because he really just wanted to be a character actor. He wanted to be what my mother was. He wanted to be a chameleon. And they just, you know, Hollywood really didn't, they just wouldn't let him do it. They wouldn't let him do it. 
If you look at the parts that he chose, you look at something like a, a film like HUD, which is just a fabulously, you know, bleak, um, comes from a wonderful, wonderful book called Horsemen Pass By, which is a worthy read. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, but, um, but dark. And, you know, he plays a completely unredeemed character. He plays a man who, he plays a horrible person who remains a resolutely horrible person. And they did say that, you know, the fact that he was so beautiful sort of changed the interpretation, but, you know, he played it, he played it straight, straight ahead, unredeemed. And then you look at the choices he made to do things like, um, like, a movie called Judge Roy Bean or Buffalo Bill and the Indians. I mean, he he really tried to go out on a limb and play and play these these characters that were that weren't so- necessarily the Greek god looking, you know, gorgeous guy, you know, coming to save everybody. He he was an artist. He truly was though an artist. And he was- he was goofy, you know. He liked he he wanted to be able to play as an actor, and actually, the um, you know, the ingenue parts and the and the leading man parts are are usually the most boring people in the movie, right? You know, I mean, there he wanted to be he wanted, and, and actually, if you look at um, you know, the film that he was probably the proudest of, I think, in terms of his work, it's certainly one of my favorites. Is the is the movie The Verdict? Um, which is, uh, I think Sidney Lumet directed it. And when my father came in to work in the beginning and, you know, they finished up with the first days of shooting and Sidney Lumet said to my father, like, that was fine. And this could be, this could be, you know, good. He said, but if you want to go home and do some real soul searching and figure out how much of yourself you want to bring to the table, um, this is a down and out alcoholic lawyer, hot mess disaster. And he said, you know, and my dad was, you know, he had a lot of issues and, um, and he went home and he thought about it and he did some digging. And that's really where that performance came from. He, he, he wow. came back because Sidney Lumet said, it will be perfectly adequate if you do what you did today. But if you go home and you really dig and you decide you want to bring something and I, it was the best advice anyone ever gave him and he was ready for it i mean it took him that long to be ready to really bring his his demons Mm -hmm. and um and that is really why it's such an extraordinary film and amazing amazing performance you make me want to go binge all of your parents movies (laughs) right now and i have a brand new really gigantic tv to do just that so i'm going to do it my guest is melissa newman she has written and a most beautiful book in words and pictures. It's called Head Over Heels, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. And a love affair it was. It it by any stretch of the imagination, if you see these pictures, you will come away with really like I did. It it, it was breathtaking. They're the dance that they had together with one another. It was extremely beautiful. Um, and I'm sure complex and I'm sure there's so many things, you know, many layers to that, as you explained in your gorgeous uh, preface of the book, which you have to read because I'm telling you, Melissa Newman, if you don't write that novel, <laughs> that is the most I, I told you that I actually made a list of those vocabulary words that you wrote it in because it was so beautifully written. And I just it wanted to make me grow and learn. And um, yeah, you really put something into it. And 
and mm-hmm. seeing you, you really are a mixture of both your mom and your dad. It's incredible in your face, but in your artistry as well. You're a beautiful jazz singer and an artist and and you're you're singing all over the place now and uh people i i want to be able to come see you so we're gonna have to get you here to the midwest somehow or i'm gonna have to fly out there i'm in i'm in (laughs) i thank you so much um when we come back i want to hear a little bit more about the book um if that's okay with you melissa and in the meantime, check it out. You can get it on Amazon. It's a coffee table. It's a gift book that you can give to someone, and it will really bring the most amazing days of of the of the theater and of movies and of a blessed relationship between those beautiful people, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, all in head over heels. Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, a love affair in words and pictures. We'll be right back. This is the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. My guest is Melissa Newman, who is just happens to be the daughter of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And she has a most glorious book. It's a gift type of book. It's something that you want to get as a as an art piece for your home. It's a what they call this the coffee table book because it is replete with the most beautiful photographs of her parents. It's called Head Over Heels, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman. A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. It's gloriously written. The The preface to the book, Melissa has, it, it's just so beautiful. I didn't want it to end. But then you get started on the photographs and you just, I kept, I went through them twice <laughs> because they were, they were so extraordinary. And, and you have to think, are, were these posed pictures or were these random pictures that people just caught them in? Like, it was so fascinating to me. They must have had these photographers sort of trailing them like when they were in Europe and Hollywood in Connecticut was that it I I sometimes feel like uh, with all the pho- photographs these are famous photographers people like Philippe Halsman and um oh, there was a David Sutton I feel like they must have been living in our house there's so many pictures by them um <clears throat> the cover photograph was taken by a man named Stuart Stern who wrote the screenplay for Rebel Without a Cause and a bunch of other films and he met my he met my um my dad 12 days before my dad met my mom and he he fell madly in love with my dad and then he got really jealous of my mom and then he and my mother became best friends but he really had the back seat to their very very early part of their relationship and he took some of the most extraordinary photographs so we have contact sheets of of his photographs. And sometimes we just printed entire contact sheets, but the, the way we decided to put the book together um, with the photographs was that um, my partner, Andrew Kelly said, you know, we said, we don't want to make it chronological. How could we make it thematic? How could we work it? And he said, what if we just make it an art book? And so what we decided to do was just, was to, um, we just had so much fun pairing one photo with another in ways that I think are almost subliminal, like you don't, you know, you don't, you, you're like, hmm, why are these two photographs together? But it's almost like sometimes it's the echo of a gesture or a, a negative space or a, you know, and, and then with the text, the text, all of the text besides my preface are quotes from my parents about each other. And 
when I was looking for material for quotes, one thing that happened was that I went up into my mother's attic. I reached into a bag that was so close to being thrown away because we had gone through the attic a million times, a ripped paper bag, you know, kicking the dead mice out of the way like you do in old houses. And um, and I found the first 10 letters my dad ever wrote my mother. Mm. And they are juicy. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought, oh, we'll just print these and put them in the book. And then I would be reading and I would say, oh, dear, I can't put <laughs> this in the book. But um, but they're body. I'm like, they're sweet. It's not, you know, they're not smutty. They're just like. Right. I loved there was one letter that you did put into the book that your dad wrote to your mother. He was traveling somewhere. He was in France, I believe, right. filming a movie. And he wrote to her. It the sweetness, but the po- poetry of it too. I was I was really made like again. Like I think sometimes people think, oh, Paul Newman was just this gorgeous hunk of a man, you know, and a movie star type of person. But he really had a lot of depth to him, and he had a lot of ability. He had the, the same artistry, you know, the ability to write. He was funny. He was coy. He was cute. The way he did things, it was very interesting. They they were both obvious artists. They weren't just you know, regular folk, uh, they were both very, it, it, it was obvious to me that they were both artists and your father was a good writer too. They both, they both love to write. They love to draw. My mother actually graduated from college at the same time as my little sister one year, uh, after me, um, we were all late bloomers. Um, but yeah, they were, they were multi, multi hyphenates, as they say, like, you know, they, they, they did a little bit of everything, um, and my dad was a great writer. And yes, these love letters, my goodness. I always say to people, take a, take notes. Uh, he fell really hard for my mom. Um, unbelievable. And we never found my mother's notes. The other thing I found up in the attic was a stack of telegrams that people had sent my mother when she won her Academy Award. And I mean, Ingrid Bergman, Carl Malden, all these amazing names. And, um, and there was a letter in there from Joan Crawford. And so, my, you know, my mother made her own dress for the Academy Awards on a sewing machine. And Joan Crawford had said, Joanne Woodward set fashion back a hundred years by making her own dress, which was so snarky. And oh. my mother was named after Joan Crawford, except down south, they pronounce it Joanne, you know. And so um, there was a, also a blue envelope where, where Joan Crawford had sent my mother congratulations for her Academy Award that said, Dear Joanne, congratulations on your award. I've heard so much about your great willingness to learn. <gasps> so mean. <laughs> I so- read that and I thought, oh, so the characters that she played in her movies, Joan Crawford, uh, were kind of like what she was really like. Not very yeah, nice I- all the time. Oh, my goodness. Not not super nice to my mom. But I was going to say about my dad, too, because you're in Indiana. You know, he spent a lot of time racing at Elkhart Lake um, racetrack. So that was that was one of his favorite spots. So aside from being a a great writer and um, making a mean hamburger and being a movie star, he also is a, a, a pretty decent race car driver. And yeah, apparently very good, actually. Right. He, he he worked really hard to be. And I think the reason he loved it so much was because, you know, you can't art is subjective. You can't, you know, there's no one's going to come and tell you definitively your art is good or bad. You know, just that's not a thing. Um, someone is someone will always feel differently. But with race cars, it's like you've got a stopwatch that measures exactly how good you are. And race car drivers, they started to pay my dad respect because they saw how hard he worked at getting good at it. 
And he really earned that respect. And he, you know, he loved, he loved his racing buddies and he felt like he really righteously earned it. It didn't have anything to do with how he looked because he always used to joke and say his epitaph would say, here lies Paul Newman who died of failure because his eyes turned brown, you know? <laughs> so, so he loved the fact that, like these, these guys just loved him because he was fast. He, they, it was, he was super. And they respected him. Yeah, yeah for his craft, which was car racing. Um, yeah. obviously, you know the the Newman's own was it your your father's brainchild? I'm imagining, or was it both your parents? Um, who came up with the idea of of doing the the charity for the hole in the wall kids? That well, the Newman's own was the was the salad dressing company. That was really my dad's my dad's gig, and um, my sister Nell developed the the organics products, which really took off. And she was such an early adopter of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, She really, she really nailed it like early on. And then my dad, you know, that was like a a blueprint for so many other businesses where there had never been a business that just gave all the money away. I mean, there's no, there's no more family members involved with the company now, but we are still involved with the hole in the wall camps. Um, The, the, um, you know, there's the serious fun children's network, so the camps for kids with life-threatening diseases that are now, there's 30 of them, I think, all over the world. Uh-huh. And they all come under the Serious Fun Children's Network umbrella. But the original camp is the Hole in the Wall Gang camp is still in Ashford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And it's just a place where my my dad had this amazing idea. And then with the whole a lot of help from a whole lot of other people, created this camp where kids can, I think they can get like chemo while they're at camp. I mean, they can, if you have a port, they just plug it up and roll you into the swimming pool. You can take off your prosthetic leg and, uh, and do the climbing while they actually have at Ashford in Connecticut, they have a zip line that can take a wheelchair. Oh, isn't that beautiful? And it is really the happiest place. And you can go on YouTube and look up the healing feeling videos, um, if you want, if you need a, if you need a happy break in your day, mm-hmm. uh, that will, that will show you. And I'm, I'm, you know, served on the board. I'm served on the board of the, um, the hole in the wall. My little sister's still on the board or, or uh, she's an ambassador for serious fun children's network. So we're very involved in that. Beautiful. Well, your family, your, your parents, in addition to being big, huge stars, they had big, huge hearts and philanthropy was just one of their hyphens that um, was on with all of that. And their children obviously um, didn't fall far from the tree being you, Melissa Newman. And I know Nell as well um, worked with her on another platform on Sirius XM. And she used to do the organic uh, food segments uh, for us. And she was terrific with that. But you you have a legacy. But I think the most beautiful part of the legacy is uh, you're one of the most talented and gracious human beings. We were so blessed to live next to you in Westport. We loved you from day one. You went over to my parents' house because they had a lot of bamboo on the property and you wanted some. And so you asked if you could cut some down and they nothing made them happier to see for them to see you walking over there with your two beautiful little boys who are now grown and amazing and uh, cutting your you were in your gum boots. I remember you would have your gum boots and your <laughs> your work clothes. And yeah, it was just a, it was a beautiful time. And um, I'm just so grateful. And now the world can see your work and read your words, which are so stunning and see the, the pictures as well in her book. 
Head Over Heels, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. Buy it for someone as a gift. I highly recommend it. You've got a coffee table book that will bring back that wonderful time when movie stars uh, were bigger than life. And yet these two made such a difference in the world on so many levels, as is their daughter right now. Melissa Newman, I'm so grateful that you came on the way home today. Thank you. And please write that next book. Oh, thank you so much. We're going to be neighbors, neighbors in our hearts forever. Forever. Neighbors forever. Head over heels, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, A Love Affair in Words and Pictures. Buy it today, wherever fine books are sold. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. Well, I'm not sure what to make of all of the AI shenanigans that are going on. I call it shenanigans. It's not really. It's just that I don't understand it very much. And so I have a fear of it when I hear about it. But I guess I'm kind of in the average of what most Americans feel that they don't fully trust AI because they, I don't think we've had enough experience with it to really know. And especially when it comes to just our day-to-day online shopping and things like that, we're a little leery about, you know, talking to machines and giving machines all of our data, things like that. Well, I have somebody here that is going to maybe take a little of the edge off and make us feel a little more comfortable about everything because he's got the knowledge that's really behind it. IBM consulting retail industry leader, Joe Ditmar. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me here, Laura. So tell us what, what's going on with this, what we can expect, and maybe something that'll make us feel a little bit better about it. Well, so we'll we'll start with hopefully putting you at a little bit at ease, which is the reputable retailers that you care about believe that trust comes first. And tr- when we talk about trust, trust involves security and delivering on their brand promise to you in every interaction. So when you put those two things at the top of the priority list, um, a consumer should should be able to walk away with feeling that if they're dealing with a reputable retailer that they've known for a long time, that if that retailer is leveraging AI, that the retailer is putting forth all of the effort they can to wrap it in governance and in security to protect your information and to delight you. Because at the end of the day, they can't afford to lose you. Without a consumer, retailers don't exist. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, But in terms of streamlining things, do you think it's going to be easier with AI? Are we going to miss the interaction? Because isn't that what happens? You sort of lose the human element of it and you're basically communicating with a non-human, so to speak. So how do how are people responding to that? So you're, you're actually not going to respond with a non-human as much as you think you are. Most of the interactions are self-help interactions where you want to want to just serve be self-service anyways. And the virtual agent, if you will, is is really just providing you with answers to the questions you have at the time that you want them provided. And maybe it would be cost prohibitive to have the best agent in the company 
waiting on you hand and foot at that moment in time. Um, if you're trying to track your order at two o'clock in the morning because you woke up and you want to know where your order is because you just remembered that it hasn't been delivered yet. Um, if you're trying to figure out more information about a particular product that online, it only had two sentences and you're not really sure that it answered your question. You're trying to find more information about that product. The, the AI virtual agent can go research more information and bring it back to you. Um, all of these are, are tasks that a virtual agent can conduct on your behalf and do so when you want it, not necessarily, you know, for everyone. It's not meant to be for everyone. It's, it's going to be highly personalized for you specifically so that it's, you know, based on your, your tone, your interactions, your history of what delights you. So it's really personal uh, in a positive way, not personal in a creepy way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I guess that does help a little bit. Um, There's another example I, I'll share with you. Yeah, go ahead. And, and this is, you know, just to help, you know, kind of guide. When we talk about, you know, I, I love to use the example of makeup. Every, each, each consumer of makeup has a palette that's specific to them. Do you need to search through all of the other palettes to find the product you're looking for? Or really, do you just need help getting to the palette you're looking for? Well, if you're in the store, they have all the palettes and they're on and they go on and on and on and on and on. But you only need your palette and you really want to get to all the options that fit you or that tangentially work for you. Wouldn't it be helpful if it could just cut you to those quickly? And then if you really needed to search, it could pull the others in as needed ad hoc. Those are all things AI can do to help you without creeping you out. Right. No, I'm sure that's going to happen a lot, that we're going to start seeing major benefits from it. And like you said, really customizing an experience. And then we're going to think, like, how did we ever do it before? You know, but um, so that's that's important. I think I think people just need to know more about it. Also, it's it's just it's not always explained in a way that people can get it. It's just whether or not it's going to like the AI was going to be infused with maybe wrong or right information or more right or more wrong information. And I think that's where people just get caught up on that. But their AI is only as good as humans are. Right. I mean, it. It's not smarter. Well, Laura, you, you bring up a good point. You know, you yeah. brought up a very good point. Not all AI is created equal. Um, good, reputable companies put governance around their AI. They put governance around the, what they call the large language models that are the teaching, if you will, that goes into the AI. You know, there are fence, fences we can put around AI to protect it. To make to build strong, you know, to build strong barriers, if you will, to to help retailers 
you know, deliver on that promise. The, the worst thing you could ever do is, is break that bond between a consumer and a, and a retailer. And that's why retailers are being very practical and thoughtful in where they deploy AI. I see. Well, it is fascinating. Where can people go for more information uh, about how how you very clearly can explain things to people like me who know just about nothing about, about it? Absolutely. So if, if you want to learn more about AI, absolutely visit ibm.com um, to see more on our study, uh, our consumer study 2024 um, visit us at ibm.com forward slash IBV to download that, that copy and read more about what consumers are signing up for. What do they think retailers should deliver them? Absolutely. Thank you so much. IBM Consulting Retail Industry Leader, Joe Ditmar for IBM. Thank you, Laura. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, I just love all of the, you know what, the topics that we have on the show, the the various guests are just so fascinating to me. And I just, it's it's been such a grand blessing doing this show now in its fifth year, The Way Home with Laura Smith. And uh, this episode is yeah, exactly the reason why this brings me so much joy, and I hope it does you as well. But we always love to leave the program with our guru of good news, giving us some great uplifting stories. Jimmy, what do you have for us this week? Well, LJ, in this upside down world we're living in, where it seems we're as divided as ever, every once in a while we get a breath of fresh air to talk about, and that exactly happened at Atlanta Airport not too long ago. I'll tell you how, what this story is. Cindy Tutko is her name. She was a passenger at the airport, was going to get on a flight. She has been struggling from a torn ACL, and she's been living really badly. She's not really able to move very well. And she had this very heavy back that she was taking. Well, there was an angel in her presence in the name of Michael Wright. He noticed that that she needed some help. Well, without any hesitation whatsoever, he decided to do something really nice for her. He grabbed her shoulder and helped carry this very heavy bag to try to get where she was going. And, and on that same day, what made things even tougher for her is that the monorail system, the light rail system that connects the airport area to get into the plane, unfortunately was temporarily unavailable. And therefore, she was not able to take some of that stress up of there. So she had to arduously find a way to get onto the plane and get there on time while having to lift this heavy bag. Well, not to worry, because Mr. Wright decided to carry this bag for her. And that's not where the active kind of stopped. Not only that, while doing this, he helped her get on the plane, physically get on the plane, so she can make her flight on time. As a matter of fact, she was early. Thanks to this wonderful act of kindness and generosity for him, he just really took a stressful situation and just really took it off her shoulders. And she was just so happy to do that. And as I was happy to say, she made her flight. And even with the disability that she had, this little temporary disability, she was able to get to where she's going. But it just goes to show you, LJ, that... Every once in a while, you find somebody that does this random act of kindness, and that's something we need more of in our world. And hats off to Michael Wright for doing this. Uh, he's uh, from Lafayette, and uh, he just really wanted to make it better for her, and he really did. Well, I would say she found her Mr. Wright 
I was Literally, say, yeah, with a W, by the way. He, he was the right man. Yes, the right stuff, <laughs> right? I can go on and on. I thought you were going to say, after all, and not only that, but he became her Mr. Right, and they got married and lived happily well, ever Well, you never after. know. There might be a part two to this story at some Addendum. point. Addendum. Yes. Yeah, you never know. Tell you what, if anybody helped me like that in an airport, I'd marry him today. You don't say. <laughs> keep her away from airports. Yes. Well, I didn't tell you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, That's beautiful. What else do you have for us today? Well, here's an interesting story. There's a young kid named Levi out of Louisville, Kentucky, who uh, is in the Jefferson County Public School System. But uh, he was not his chipper self in the school bus. And his driver's name was Larry Farish, Jr. He's been driving uh, school buses in the public school system for seven years now. And he's become like a second father to these kids. You know, he's telling jokes, rock, paper, scissors. He's not your run-of-the-mill bus driver. I mean, he was a very friendly guy. Well, anyway, one day he noticed that Levi, who he really, really loves was not his chipper self. He saw him sulking in his seat, and he wondered why. Well, you see, it was pajama day at his elementary school. He's a first grader. He didn't have any. He was wearing his regular clothes. Now, I don't know if he was aware it was pajama day, or maybe his folks didn't have any. He was really, really sulking. So you know what happened? So Mr. Ferris decided to do something. After he dropped the young kid off at school, he decided to do something for him. This is the kind of guy he is, more than a bus driver. He went to a dollar store and grabbed a few pairs of pajamas, and then he came over to the school and told, I guess, the principal, whoever the powers that be, to have Levi come down, and he gave him those pajamas. And I, you say, I guess you can say it's from tears of sadness to tears of joy. It was a happy cry for him because now he was able to wear pajamas like all his fellow students. Thanks to the incredible kindness and generosity of the school bus driver, he was able to make his day because uh, Larry says he's been in the school system for many years, and he says just had an impact on these young kids. They're just like his own, and it's just another example of what he did, and they just they just love this guy, and, and the kid just mm-hmm. uh, now it's pajama day, and he couldn't be any happier. He had the biggest smile on his face. Good for him. To all the good bus drivers out there who make these children's days and get them safely to where they're going, God bless you. We salute you. And Jimmy, thank you so much. Always finding the good, the silver lining, so to speak, in the world of radio and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, dear. And thank you to Bob for producing The Way Home today. Oh, I love doing it. Thank you. Oh, well, see, it's all good. Maybe that's what we should change the name of the show to it's all it's good, all good. <laughs> that's nice. all right i hope it's all good for you listening and please have a wonderful safe beautiful week and uh, cherishing those you love and uh, the time you have on this planet earth we'll see you next time on the way home i'm laura smith